Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So it's Tuesday, August 3rd. Chirped me for my horrible small talk uh, introduction. So I'm going to forego all that today. I'll just say, what you know, what are we getting into? I was saying that if you've been listening long enough, Ricky's got like two go-tos. He either says, oh man, we haven't recorded in in a while. We'll be better next week. Or he says, Oh, look at the weather outside. <laughs> I was like, you're like that guy that was like, it's probably has nothing to talk about. So he just goes, he has like two things that he talks about. And so, I mean, literally he has two things. And now he has nothing else to say. About I have nothing. You, you, you ruined it for me. All right. So the big focus for this episode is we're going to talk about neoliberalism. And if you know what that means, we hope you find this conversation interesting and relevant. And if you don't know what that means, we hope you find it informative and hopefully interesting and relevant too. Uh, So that's going to be the big focus of the episode. And we'll explain why we're talking about it um, when we get into it later. Uh, We're also going to talk last episode, if you listened, was all about the Olympics and like an Olympic preview. And we talked about... COVID issues in Tokyo and talked about some of the events and memories and athletes that uh, we were looking forward to seeing or we look forward to reminiscing about. And so now that we are a little over halfway through the Olympics, we're going to you know, look back on this first week and look ahead to the second week of the Olympics. So that's what we'll start with. But Ricky, as always, before we get into that, just remind everyone out there that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, you can check them out at Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, the guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you that trees are great at political debates because they're so good at throwing shade. I I mean, never... I need I need help with my small talk game from those guys. That's that's who I should. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not the worst idea I've ever heard. Okay, uh, let's talk let's talk Olympics. So, like I said, we we spoke you know a little about a week and a half ago, and you know had a preview of what we thought might happen or what we were excited to see happen. But now that we're a weekend, what what have you been excited to watch or read about? Uh, what what have been some of the big stories that have stuck out to you? Oh man, I, I mean, this Olympics, I've definitely not been able to catch as much of it as I wanted to. I think partly because of the time difference. I got yeah. a, a lot of, uh, have like a bad habit of, you know, popping open ESPN kind of first thing in the morning. And it's like all the, the spoilers for what I would get to see in prime time that night. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, you give me an opportunity to go in the media, Ricky. I will go in on the media where it's like everyone's got to be so quick to like report everything. Whereas, like, I'll wake up and literally check my phone and I'll have nine million notifications of that, that this thing happened. And it's like, well, like, what if I didn't want those? <laughs> you know, like, you like, can we have like, you should be able to say that, you know, like on blogs and things when they say like spoilers, like stop reading, you know, but it's, it's not. It's like, oh, the Washington Post or CNN or the Wall Street Journal, are like, hitting me with things and I look at it I'm like oh well that ruined the event that I plan on watching tonight I mean I've still watched a lot of it but it's like there's no you don't have the drama and the suspense like you normally would watching live yeah yeah no totally I mean I I guess there are a couple of events that I 
did get to catch live early on. There was like a, a, a men's cycling event where a gentleman from like, I want to say Ecuador or something won, but he was really pushed by this American guy who had, no, I forgot both of their names, who had like an incredible story. Like he, he didn't really do much in the Tour de France. And so they were talking about all the guys who were in the Tour de France and the two, I think, Slovenian or Slovakian. Yeah. Bad to bad to mix those two up, but <laughs> they're from one of those places like had were the odds-on favorites and this American guy and this other guy from Ecuador just like all of a sudden broke away from the pact. And one of them, the gentleman from Ecuador ended up winning. American didn't finish top three, but I mean, he had an incredible race and it's it's really just moments like that that I really – enjoy looking for and rooting for and there were some some interesting stuff in the pool as well um maybe you can help me out with this one the alaskan swimmer who won yeah um what was her name 17 years old um lindsey lindsey like jacob so let me look that up go ahead okay all right you look that up i mean her story was i mean phenomenal just like yeah 17 years old so young she's going against another american who's like arguably one of the best to ever do it in in that event and she's trained in some pool that's not even like there's like in alaska yeah. or something like i mean it's just stories like that that make the olympics for me so special yeah so lydia jacoby, lydia jacoby yeah. first um swimming medal ever to come out of alaska um so it was really cool and i don't know if you saw like there was a big like gymnasium of like alaskans like our friends and family that were watching and just going bananas oh, yeah so cool i will say that that has been one of my favorite things about this olympics and it's obviously we, we had talked about it a couple of last episode that it was really unfortunate that the friends and families of these athletes weren't going to be there and weren't going to be able to share in, in these moments but it's also been really cool to see these watch parties. And sometimes it's just, you know, a couple of family members. And sometimes it's these, these big things like um, for Lydia Jacoby, where there seemed like there were a couple hundred people at, at this place. But to see like everyone get to like be together and react as they're watching it live, or even some of the shots where, you know, there, I feel like there've been a couple NFL players that have like sisters that have been participating in like track and field and like other or swimming and things like that. And you get to watch like the, these NFL guys who are obviously these tremendous athletes in their own right, but like watching and everyone going crazy for like their sisters or their wives or whomever, like th- those videos have been really cool to see. And I didn't, I didn't expect that coming in. So it's been one of the, like I said, unexpected uh, pleasant surprises for me of the first week. Yeah. It's like those watch parties that they'll have like during the world cup or like the Olympics, so right. just, like a country center or something. And yeah, you just watch everybody go nuts. As, and, and it's cool because in a, in an arena, there are people, especially for these types of individual events, there are tons of fans, but they're all there for different reasons. <laughs> and here you just see like all the concentration of uh, joy, really. It's, it's fun. Right. It doesn't mean like it's still unfortunate for the athletes that you don't get to have your parents there, your significant other there or your siblings there, whomever. Right. But at the same time, like to watch that, like if you are a parent, you get to have like your whole family there and all your friends there and everyone's rooting together. You get to celebrate like that's kind of cool, too. Like there's one one in particular. I don't know if you saw this, but Caleb Dressel, who we had highlighted coming in as like, you know, the greatest male swimmer in the world right now. He, he went he won five and all won five gold medals one of only, I think, four uh, U.S. swimmers to ever do it, um, Spitz, Beyondi, Spelps, like these kind of like legendary names. So he had an awesome, but 
there was one where they, they were interviewing after his first gold medal. It was his first gold medal he had ever won an individual race. And they have his family and it was his parents and his wife. And like, he got to see them live and he just like broke down and he was just like falling. And I was like, I mean, it was like chills and kind of like almost I was crying there being like, what a cool feeling to be able to just like see like your family being so happy and proud of you. And uh, I don't like, that was a particular video that stuck out to me. Yeah, it's, it, I think the whole experience, um, I mean, I can't imagine what it's been like for the athletes, but definitely as a, a viewer, it's, it is one of those, like, it's bittersweet still, I mean, still like the most incredible uh, feats that like human beings can do, like still, you know, breaking world records I mean, the track apparently has been like incredibly fast over there in Tokyo and the people, some of the track and field events are just absolutely flying um and that like from a viewer's perspective is awesome obviously the athletes don't quite have the experience that that they hope for yeah i want to pick up on so track is just really starting it's started um just two days ago and so we still have a lot of major track events to come but uh a couple ones that i want to highlight i had highlighted the the women's 400 meter hurdles i don't know when the 400 meter hurdles became like the best event in the world but so the women i'm still excited their finals haven't happened yet we're still waiting on Dalila muhammad cindy mclaughlin that should be awesome uh but last night uh this dude from norway karsten warholm beat out rye benjamin this american and there's there was a record that had, set, had been set in 1992 that warholm had just broken last month and he shattered it he went under like he did it so 400 meters is one full lap of the track and you have to jump 10 hurdles <clears throat> and he broke 46 seconds which is like people i mean not only just people obviously like me and you can't run around in 46 seconds but like even like world-class athletes struggle to break 46 seconds just running around the track and he did it hopping over 10 hurdles and rye benjamin also shattered the world the previous world record by like over half a second and and lost and like his face at the end like I, like i was watching last night he's he's like crouched down the track and he's looking at the time being like i just ran the fastest time ever and i got smoked by this guy over here it was it was incredible yeah there it's something about competition that brings out like you know especially like olympic competition that just brings out something special in the in these types of people right and like like we were saying with muhammad and mclaughlin like when you have these two and like it's the same thing with benjamin and warholm like everyone knew it was going to be those two and it's when you have those two that can really push each other to be like that that's when you really start to see like you know not to be too uh, extreme here but like humans push themselves like their very full potential like yeah. it, like no one thought 46 seconds would be broken for years it had it hadn't had never been broken before and he, he shattered a record that had stood for almost 30 years all right um a I couple of we just ahead. wrap up maybe by uh talking a little bit about some some of the women's gymnastics i wonder what, what how you felt about this saga so that's the for me that's the number one story right we have Dressel I'll answer your question there's a few other people I wanted to highlight Emma McKeon um, an Australian swimmer won seven medals which um, tied a, a record uh, the U.S. women's national soccer team we had kind of highlighted coming in that this might be the end of an era for them as a lot of their players were getting older and they had not a good tournament they only won once in in regulation and got bounced in the in the semis um, so they will not be the first team to win World Cup and Olympics back-to-back, and that's super disappointing. Um, tennis, Novak Djokovic, we had highlighted potentially going for the Golden Slam, uh, lost twice. He lost in the semis and lost in the bronze medal match, so 
disappointing end for him. And Naomi Osaka. He actually withdrew from the bronze medal match. He withdrew from the mixed doubles bronze. Oh, medal sorry. Yeah, right, he, right. he was playing too much. We, can go down. we don't need to make this a tennis double. Because <laughs> uh, we could. Uh, Naomi Osaka, who we highlighted, uh, who had pulled out of Wimbledon, I mean, of the French Open in Wimbledon with some mental health struggles. She's Japanese. She lit the she um, lit the torch uh, in the Olympics and decided to play, but lost uh, in the third round. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens with her. And speaking of young athletes, young female athletes, young female athletes of color struggling with some mental health issues on a world stage, Simone Biles, biggest story of the Olympics for me. I think it's the biggest story. Period. She was, as we mentioned last episode she was the face of the Olympics in a lot of ways. She was everywhere on all of the commercials, uh, not only for products, you know, like Visa, but also for like NBC in general of, of highlighting her uh, the greatest female gymnast of all time. It was kind of a unanimous consensus going in. She was expected to win her second all around gold. She was expected to help the United States win their third all team gold and, and several other gold she, after her first event in the the women's team competition, she pulled out. My first thought was I was super disappointed. Um, one, like as a kind of fan and viewer and two in her, like, you know, she, it, so the news comes down and nobody really knows what happens. And then it comes out that like, she's not injured. Like it's, you know, it's not a, you know, a physical issue. Uh, and you she at the end says pretty much like, yeah, like mentally, I just, you know, I just wasn't there. I, I couldn't really handle it. And my, my first reaction was like, this is super disappointing. Like you work you know, four or five years in this case to get to this point, like the highest point of, of, you know, your career, maybe of the world stage. And then you quit. And not only do you quit, like it's, it wasn't even just, she quit like the individual competition. This was like the team competition. And so my sense was like, you're kind of letting your teammates down and like your country down in some way. So And I was like, if, if we're being totally honest, if, you know, LeBron James got to the NBA finals, if Tom Brady got to the Super Bowl, right? Like if Mookie Betts got to the World Series and they said like, you know, I'm not mentally feeling it. I think there'd be a lot of backlash against those guys. Took me a day or so to really try to take everything in and maybe get a bigger perspective. And I, one, I have a ton of respect for Simone Biles. Like I, it was, it had to have been devastating for her. Like as much as I'm as a fan, like rooting for her to like kind of perform on this world stage, like she's the one that has actually been working for five years in her whole life to be able to do these things and to have the strength to withdraw and say like, Hey, I just don't have it. That's It's a ton of, and to her, to her credit, she got up at, this is where I was kind of critical of Osaka, where she got up and said to the media after like, yeah, I like mentally, I'm just not there. I don't totally know why I'm not there. I'm, I'm concerned about it. I want to figure it out, but like I, that's why I don't have it. And she was like super supportive of her teammates, not only in like the team competitions, but all of the individual competitions and stood there and yelled for them and was like their biggest supporter. And they seemed to have her back too. So it was kind of like if her teammates have her back and like, they're not upset by this. And like, she's been such a good teammate to them and such a good example of just kind of like owning your issues on a, on a world stage. Like who am I to be upset? She doesn't owe me anything. Uh, so that's kind of how like my like evolution of like viewing her withdrawal has been over the course of the week. Yeah. I, I think I was sort of, I mean, almost lucky to like hear about it tangentially and not think about it too much and, and sort of 
digest the information more slowly over time and in listening to more people who had who had opinions about it i mean i mean the reality is like athletes have to pull out of things all the time for different reasons right like the nba i think lebron james made a huge note about it like the finals were every other day some superstar is not playing on his team because he's got an ankle he's got a back and obviously you know when we hear about mental issues especially you know we still grew up in an era where like the mental aspect of sport was really largely not talked about it was just like you just got to tough it out like you're you know what i mean like it's just if you're if you're not doing that then you don't have the heart you don't have like the will and that's just like a negative on you it's not anything else and then then things kind of came out about her it wasn't just that she was like i don't feel it i have this like the twisties or whatever that is. And I mean, obviously I don't know what that means really, but like a feeling of disorientation once you're in the air doing these absolutely insane flips and twists and all that stuff. And it's like, all right, so yes, we can ascribe this to a mental ailment, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of, you know, the same way that if you do something to your ACL, like, can I hurt it worse or is this just like what it is? And on the off season, I can, I can uh, train like the twisties. Like, am I going to break my neck? 50, 50 chance, maybe. So like, ah, you know, I'm okay. I'll, I'll sit this one out. And so yes, a mental affliction, but certainly there was safety at play there. And I think what you said was right. Like one, there's nobody who thought probably longer and harder about the decision not to compete than somebody who's woken up probably every day at 4am for the past five years straight to train for an event like the Olympics. Right. Um, I think the thing that also stands out to me is just the, the fact that like throughout this Olympics, right. So many of the, the foregone conclusions, the people we kind of treat as like, robots they're so far and away you know when they're at their best so far and away better than everybody else that we like forget that they still have to like show up they still have to do the thing um and that is you know from from the american women's soccer team um to like katie ledecky to simone biles like across the board like it is a very very difficult thing to get to this the pinnacle of your sport but obviously as we've seen even more difficult to, to stay there, you know, while the spotlight is on you and you're trying not to be distracted. Whereas like, you know, all these other athletes who have similar talents and abilities, but maybe haven't achieved yet, they get to grind in kind of uh, anonymity and it's a totally different ball game. I mean, obviously they have pressures too, but you know, I think we've, we've seen, we kind of, at the same time as we marvel at this, like almost the inhumanness, like the, the superhumanness of a lot of these athletes. Um, I think the Tokyo games has just been a great reminder that at the end of the day, still people um, still got to wake up in the morning, put their pants on shoes on one foot at a time or whatever that saying is, and like actually do the thing um, before they get the gold. And uh, I think it makes it all that more special when we do get to see them at their best um, to know that it's not like a foregone conclusion yeah. that, that they really still every day have to put in the work for it. Right. And so yeah, we even like mentioned Novak Djokovic earlier or like the men's, you know, the U S men's basketball team who lost their first game, like 
to have all that pressure. And so like bring it back to Biles, but like any of these athletes that are at the very pinnacle. So they have the pressure coming from themselves, right? That, Hey, I am the best. I have to, I should like, there's this expectation that I should win, but then there's so much outside pressure and that it's whenever you don't win, it's a disappointment And like winning is almost like a relief at that point, as opposed to like the celebration of like an incredible accomplishment that it should be. And oh, she's been at the top of her sport for so long, you know, really like seven or eight years at this point where she's just dominated everything. Like the pressure coming in and she like to her credit, she's been super open about that being like the pressure was immense. It felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders and like I, it was my body and my mind just like weren't in, in sync at this point. And uh, to your other point of, we talked about like the vault going into this Olympics and how even just watching it just in general, you're like, this is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> like, like, like that you're like, you're like, sprinting, launching yourself on this thing, somersaulting around three or four times and then trying to like land on your feet. Right. It's just, it's dangerous no matter what. I don't, I really don't even know how they get to the point of being able to do stuff like that in general, when you are like losing yourself up in the air. Yeah. It did become like a, a safety issue. And I think when I realized that too, was kind of like, yeah, she's got to take care of like, take care of yourself, please. Yeah. And I mean, in, you know, the silver linings is we got to see some other phenomenal athletes, right? Like Suni Lee getting the gold uh, was awesome. It was so cool. And now I'm going to forget her last name, but there was another Michaela who was originally left off the vault and she ended up placing, uh, you know, following in the suit of a long line of Michaela's who were pretty good at jumping off the, jumping off that thing. Yeah, that goes back to like Biles being a great teammate, right? So Michaela Skinner is the one that you yeah, just referenced. Yes. Um, Jay Carey, who was on, uh, Suni Lee, who you mentioned that continued the streak of Americans winning the all around we talked about since 2004. Uh, I want to come back to her in a minute. Um, Jordan Childs, who like in the team all around didn't expect to do certain events and just like stepped up because Biles couldn't do them and stepped up and did them. And then the U.S. still won silver. I think that was cool because obviously it's disappointing. The U S was expected to win gold and it's disappointing when you don't, but those girls were like, were not disappointed. They were just really proud of themselves for all stepping up and being like, we just want a silver medal. Like this is awesome. Right. And it is right. And I think that for me, at least it was a good reminder of like, it's like my expectations don't matter. Like these, these girls just did something that's really cool and they'll be able to be proud of themselves for the rest of their lives. And, and like you said, stepping into places and stepping up when they didn't expect to have to, that was it is really cool. But Suni Lee, who we had, I mentioned briefly, had heading into the Olympics. I don't know if you had seen any of the stories about her. So we had talked about she's, she was the first Hmong American to make the U.S. gymnastics team. I will say that the U.S. gymnastics team is, it's all, it's just super diverse. It, it's like always diverse every year. And even if you look at the winners, like Carly Patterson was white, but Nastia Lukin was an immigrant. Her parents were an immigrant from Russia. And then Gabby Douglas was the first um, black American gymnast to win it. And then obviously Simone Biles and now Suni Lee, like it's, you know, five Americans in a row, but five Americans that have come from very different places, which is like really cool. Uh, But also they were showing how her dad was like her big uh, kind of like fan and coach growing up. And they showed her a house where there was like this wooden beam that he had built for her in their backyard. And there were like home videos of her like flipping on it as like a little, as a child. Um, but her dad got uh, paralyzed in like an accident. And so was in a wheelchair now in like the, the guy that had taught her how to do all of these flips. And then for her 
now to like take everything that he had taught her and, and show up on the world stage and be the best. It was like, it's, you had mentioned going into the Olympics, like these stories that, you know, maybe we knew a little bit or didn't know at all to hear those stories. It, it makes, you know, special moments, even more heartwarming and more special. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. So sorry, there's one more. Now that I've, now, now that I've mentioned that story, um, Xander Schauffele won the American golfer, won the Olympic gold. And at the end he said, you know, this is for my, my family, my parents, but especially for my dad. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but his dad was um, like a, a really highly ranked junior decathlete and decathletes are the ones that do like all of these things yeah. and was German. It was as a 20 year old was um, potentially competing for a spot at the Olympics and was like really highly regarded and got hit by a drunk driver and like ended his, ended his career. Um, and so like his, you know, his goal was all, his father's goal was always like win an Olympic medal. And then Z- Xander goes and becomes a golfer and you know, like you say, you can't make this stuff up. His dad's there and he's like, dad, like we did it. We won this Olympic medal. And like, it's like, it's just chills. And that's the beauty. One of the beauties of the Olympics. Yeah. And yeah. And, and sport in general. All right. So uh, when we come back, we'll, we're going to shift some really shift some gears around here um, and talk a little bit about neoliberalism. So neoliberalism, Ricky, you came to me, you sent me a message a couple weeks ago and you're like, we're always going back and forth behind the scenes of like, hey, what are some episodes, what are some topics that we want to discuss? Maybe this is something to discuss next week. Maybe it's something to kind of put in the hopper for a month from now. And you're like, I want to talk about neoliberalism. Okay. <laughs> what do you want to talk about it? So that, that, Ricky, that's my question. Why, why, why did you want to talk about it? Why are we talking about it now? Why, this is, this is your baby. So why don't you give us me, the audience, a little guidance about what we're doing here? Oh, all right. So I started to think about this. I think there has been like in general, like newspaper op-eds and stuff, there's been a little bit more talk about kind of the neoliberal approach to government. Um, Neoliberalism, I think if you don't know too much about it, we'll get maybe into more of like a high level definition in a second, I think is a word that especially over the Trump era actually ended up having a, a negative connotation, which I think is what makes it interesting because, um, for a long time on the, on the left in the sort of the more progressive circles, neoliberalism also has kind of a negative connotation. Um, so I will be curious to hear, you know, from listeners and think from, from others, you know, when you hear that word, do you think it's a good thing or do you think it's a bad thing? Are you asking me? I mean, I'm throwing it out there to the ether. So that, that's kind of, I think in part where I wanted to start. Um, and, and then, maybe taking a step back. And I think this is like an exercise that I feel like we don't often do when we start to decide what politicians 
we support or what policies we support. I think the question or the topic of neoliberalism is kind of a great source of uh, introspection, really. Like, what do we think government is supposed to be doing, right? Like, uh, what is the function that it is supposed to serve? Because we have, you know, we we use government policy oftentimes to kind of target specific areas and to address specific problems, right? Like we're seeing infrastructure now, we're like, we're going to do something about our broken bridges, right? Those are individual um, kind of instances where we see government policy in action. But broadly speaking, governments have kind of a pretty big role in just establishing the rules that our society kind of operates under. And those rules kind of lead us towards different outcomes. And so maybe now is the right time to get into a little bit around like the neoliberal philosophy. So maybe before I get into my spiel, I'm curious to hear kind of what you think about or yeah, what you think of when you think of neoliberalism. I think of like freedom mostly. Uh, I think of, you know, if we're looking at like figures and maybe you're going to get into this, I, I think of like Ronald Reagan. I think of um, the economists like Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek. Uh, I think of a philosophy of government that uh, sprung up over the mid uh, 1900s, uh, mid, yeah, mid 1900s and came into prominence both in Europe and the United States in the late 1900s um, and continued for, I would say, for, you know, 35-ish years as, as maybe the, the most prominent view of economics and government in the world. Um, I think neoliberalism is a good thing. I am a fan generally of, of like the policies of it. And so I guess I'll, I'll turn it back to you to maybe get into some of the history of the development of this philosophy of government and economics. Yeah, and certainly I encourage anybody who's, you know, more uh, in the economic history realm of things to, to feel free to fact check me. But in, you know, the, the, I guess the general philosophy behind neoliberalism, which isn't sort of unique to the mid 1900s, but certainly, as you said, kind of came into prominence under the likes of uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Thatcher in, in the UK. Obviously, the economist Milton Friedman is, is probably the most quoted um, when it comes to sort of what government is supposed to do. So the neoliberal philosophy is essentially government's main responsibility is, is to will kind of uphold the rules of society, but everything else it's supposed to be kind of hands off. So it, it really relies on markets, supply and demand to uh, solve basically all of our problems, right? So you have a need for um, what, you know, whatever it is, a some type of consumer product, um, the demand for that product is established. Maybe four or five companies come up with ways to uh, solve the, the problem or, or meet that need. Um, and then the market consumers decide which one they like you know, the best. And maybe there's 
some product that fits the needs of some people at a certain price point, other products that fits the needs of others. You know, we talk about like replacement goods, but it's really this philosophy that um, if you introduce sort of constraints to how supply and demand kind of can operate freely, then you're creating inefficiencies in the market. And so the, the main tenants, it, it sort of relies on a couple of uh, pretty, pretty broad assumptions um, so that like people have the freedom to enter and exit markets without um, real cost associated with it. So that's companies introducing new things. There's this freedom of uh, kind of a frictionless entry and exit from markets. Um, Consumers have what we call perfect information. So they understand all of their options and and kind of make decisions accordingly. Um, And then individual actors are rational. They act sort of in their own best interest at all times. And we think that if they're doing that, then on the whole, we can kind of maximize um, everybody's interest because everybody kind of has an equal opportunity to um, to sort of participate in this market and an equal opportunity to reap the benefits. And the, um, the main things that <clears throat> neoliberals will sort of say that they want the government not to do is that government intervention in the form of taxes, in the form of subsidies, in the form of potentially like trade regulations, all those types of things introduce market inefficiencies. And so in order for us to like maximize our potential, we need to limit all of that behavior, right? So the neoliberal philosophy has been sort of, how do you take government out of the actual like the goings on and just use it to ensure that everyone's sort of playing by the same set of rules. So that's kind of the, the overarching philosophy here of neoliberalism. And it had sort of manifested itself in things like, you know, Ronald Reagan saying. All right. Let, let, I want to, let's build up to Reagan because that's really where I think this maybe reaches its, its pinnacle, but to, to back up a little bit, you're right. These ideas didn't come out of nowhere. These are ideas that had percolated in uh, European thought and then were brought over to American thought. Um, so we're talking about like Adam Smith, the wealth of nations, right? Like the, this kind of this economic idea uh, is not new to the 1900s. Uh, but where it really comes into play is really in the 1940s. And why it comes into play is if you look around the world in the 1940s, you have you just come out of like the democratic socialism of, of Nazism in, in primarily Germany. You have the rise of communism out of the Soviet Union and spreading across a lot of like the Eastern Hemisphere. And even in places like the United States, FDR had been president now for four, four terms, and he had greatly expanded the, the government of the United States. And a lot of those things, you know, we've talked about before, like a lot of the, the programs, like kind of the social safety nets and the increase of taxation and the more spending from government. And so even in the more classically, quote unquote, like freer or liberal societies, economists, philosophers, people that like to think about these things are looking around the world and saying like, there's less and less freedom for individuals in the world. And 
obviously that's on a, a sliding scale from you know FDR to Joseph Stalin, right? But but kind of in general, that's what they're thinking. And so they start to get together in the 1940s in, in Europe and start to get like, how do we come up with a philosophy, a way of ideas to influence these governments so that there's less like central planning, that these governments are not just getting bigger and more powerful and making decisions for these people and try to redirect it more towards, you know, what you would say was like the, I don't know, Renaissance isn't the right word, but this emergence of like freedom that started with, you know, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And you had looked for, you know, maybe 150 years and societies, at least in Europe and North America, had gotten increasingly free. And now it seemed like, hey, starting in the 1930s, they're getting increasingly less free. And so like, that's where like the, I, I, the first kind of let's get together as quote unquote neoliberals, you know, whatever that term really means, and try to start figuring out some ways to impact governments and try to make governments do what we think they should do and more in like the classical you know, Western tradition of ensuring freedom. Yeah. And I mean, as you said, even going back to sort of the foundation of the United States, right, between the Federalists and Republicans, there were definitely sort of diverging versions of where should the concentration of power be and how, and of course, we talk about this in the context of how it unfolded. So when we talk about freedom, it's not universal, but it is, it is for well, as you said, it was growing. So it's a growing subset of people. It previously was just like white male property owners and started to expand to slowly to, to other parts of the population. But um, I think your point is, yeah, I think, I think, I think this is what, what a very interesting connection um, that has been made between freedom and capitalism that, like capitalism is the sort of the market construct that is inextricably linked with freedom um, and that any sort of uh, challenges to capitalism are ostensibly challenges to freedom. I think that is from a, like a framing standpoint, like how do we market the ideas was a huge uh boon for kind of the the early conservative Republican Party movement of the 70s and 80s on, uh, you know, up until Reagan, that only started to become more or less co-opted by the Democratic Party in the 90s under Clinton. Uh, when we started, we, I say we as in like the Democratic Party, although that's not entirely my philosophy, but that's that shift away from big government. And I think maybe now's a now's a time for you to give a little recap on our our boy Ronald here. Sure, I, I, you know it's funny as you were speaking. It reminds me of some earlier episode when you were particularly fired up and yelling at me. You were like, "What do you think? Like capitalism is foundation to our foundational to our society?" And I was like, "Yes," <laughs> which I think is like a little bit of a fundamental disagreement that you know that you and I have. Uh, so the policies of more central planning government doing more uh, for better or for worse continued up through the presidency of Jimmy Carter. And so Jimmy Carter is uh, president in the late 70s, 76 to 80. And under Jimmy Carter's term through maybe some of his faults, 
a lot of things that were kind of out of his control, there's what's known as stagflation. So the economy kind of stagnates, inflation rises. For any of our older listeners out there, I'm, I'm sure you remember this time, there was like the classic people are lining up to go get gas. And uh, it just felt like it felt like the economic policies that had been on the rise and had been continued for like from FDR through, uh, you know, Truman and Eisenhower less so, but particularly then you have Kennedy and Johnson and Carter, like you have a really run of democratic presidents that are trying to do more for people in society from the government, right? They're, they're trying to, you know, make government bigger and in order to provide like more services. And I mean, we can debate whether like there's pros and cons to that, of course, uh, but those policies had been pretty consistent for you know, almost 50 years at that point. Uh, but it felt like in the late 70s that they weren't working anymore. And this was the chance for neoliberal philosophers to really have their impact on government. And you mentioned this is the rise of, of Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the UK, uh, similar. And you have Ronald Reagan you know, kind of famously saying that, uh, you know, the 10 scariest words in the English language is, uh, is we are the government, we are here to help, right? And uh, he, has, he has a couple like great quotes like that. Uh, and his point was that government should stay, should do less and stay out of people's lives and deregulate things and allow people to make their own decisions. Pros and cons to that as well. Uh, and I'll let you talk about Reagan if you, Reagan, you know, Reaganomics if you want in a minute. But I do think it's, it's interesting. And we've mentioned this before where, you know, Reagan is overwhelmingly popular. He, he wins in the biggest landslide in, in his reelection campaign in 1984. I think Mondale only won Minnesota, which was his home state. Uh, and so whether or not like historically we look back on his policies, economic policies and say that they were good or effective at the time he was wildly popular. And what you have after him, you have his vice president, um, George H.W. Bush get, gets elected. So you have a 12 year run of Republican presidents. And then you have Clinton who comes in and economically is not too different. And we've talked about this before is he's, he's continued a lot of the policies of, of Reagan. And then you have George W. Bush, Obama comes in after him. And while of course they have very different um, policies concerning some like social issues and even policies like within economics, largely a lot of the same policies are continued. And there's uh, almost a 40 year run from Reagan in 81 through the end of Obama in 2016, that the, the economic policies of neoliberalism are in vogue and popular and they come crashing down with Trump. So you can pick up wherever you want in that little history. Yeah, that, so I, I think that's a great um, overall summary. I mean, the, like, like you said, Reagan had a ton of great quotes. The, um, like the, government you know government is not going to solve your problems government like is the problem i butchered yeah. that one but it's it's some something along those lines but but like you said yeah that philosophy was really credited with a lot of economic growth that we saw in the 80s and 90s so this is again one of those things that we will come back to a number of times i i always think that there's something where like the president can really take credit for or take the blame for a lot of things that are kind of happening. Like none of these choices, policy decisions happen in a vacuum, but it's very easy to establish that causal 
relationship um, between, oh, we lower taxes, our economy is doing well, therefore it must be the lowering of taxes. And, and like you said, yeah, bigger government, we had very high tax rates on our highest income earners in the 50s and 60s. That's when those were the, now it is a progressive taxing scale, which means that it's only like marginal dollars that get charged at those rates, but whatever, they were significantly higher than they are today. Um, and a lot of that, the trickle down economics that, you know, the, the people at the top with the money are the job creators and therefore we need to arm them with the most amount of money and taxing them does the opposite of that. And so if we want to have a booming economy, we need to have lower taxes, especially on the rich. This was the philosophy, um, that we saw unfold. Now, a lot of things were going on, right? We had a much bigger expansion in global trade in the 80s and 90s. Um, we'll say though that like free trade is a neoliberal concept. Right. So we should we should perhaps come back to that um, a little bit, but maybe spending just a little time on on how we have used and, and seen it from both parties be used to kind of address our issues. So um, if we think about healthcare, right, Obama really push forward this idea that we want um, everybody to have access to healthcare, but he did it sort of following the neoliberal kind of uh, philosophy here, right? He went and established a marketplace Mm -hmm. that everybody essentially has access to because under, under our doctrine, markets are the only way to come up with efficient solutions. And if you don't have a market, you're, introducing inefficiency. So what is kind of the flip side to that? Well, the flip side is a like, uh, well, it's probably more akin to the Medicare for all, right? A single payer, everybody gets healthcare. um, And, and we just have one solution. Now, obviously, like, like everything, there are pros and cons to that. Um, But I think what we're seeing and I think why this is such a relevant discussion today is that 20 years ago, if you had talked about a single payer healthcare system, getting the socialist brand would have meant that you couldn't even like, I mean, you couldn't even run in the primaries, let alone almost win a primary the way that Bernie Sanders did. Right. So we are seeing this shift. And I think, you know, in the way that you laid out the history, I I think it's even more interesting to see that kind of the pendulum um, swing. Now, we always see the shift back and forth between who's in power, Democrats or Republicans or or parties of different names um, over the, you know, the history of our country. But we're also seeing some of these longer term shifts play out as well, right? You had the Great Depression, I think, in the 1930s, followed by FDR, New Deal, Obviously, he did a lot for roads and bridges, but he also created Social Security, right? And it's Social Security has the name Social in it. Why? Because it is a social safety net program that functions a lot. You know, it, it functions in a prescri- in a prescriptive fashion, meaning that there's no there no there's no market about it. You pay into it, you get paid out of it at the end of the. Um, time. Now, is that the most efficient way? I think you'll, you, you would have arguments, um, but that has now become foundational to how we think about government protecting social security. 
Like if you go after social security, that is definitely a loser politically. Right. And now we're getting back to, you know, fast forward to where we are today. And all of a sudden Medicare for all is a lot less unpopular than it had been. And it's not seen as like, okay, now we're going to delve into communism. And what are we also seeing these massive, massive government spending bills. So reminds me a lot of what we saw under FDR coming out of uh, the great depression. And now we're like, you know, 10 years on from our 2008 financial crisis you know, widening in, in income inequality. And what are we seeing? We're seeing people say, hey, the government should be doing more. Right. It's a, it's a, and this is one of the reasons I think that you want to talk about this in general. It's just kind of fascinating to see how these ideas become in vogue. Like you, you would think that like, maybe this does kind of build over these next few, you know, administrations, these next few decades, perhaps. And then the we can maybe predict that there's going to be a swing back. I, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship of like our parties with these ideas, because as we both mentioned, this was, you know, for the free market and neoliberalism is traditionally considered a Republican idea. But if, if you look at, as we said, the Clinton or Obama administrations, they were not much different than the Reagan and Bush administrations and their economic policies. Of course, that's a huge oversimplification, but like generally speaking, the same type of philosophies, right? Uh, the markets drive the solutions. Exactly. Right. And you, you see it with the free trades, right? Like let's talk about um, NAFTA, right? That's a, that's a Clinton bill. It's to open up free trade between Mexico and Canada. And so that's a very much like a, you know, the Reaganomics or neoliberal, let, let, let's open up the border make the markets figure it out. And then Trump comes along a Republican, you know, at least in name. I, uh, and says that like, hey, NAFTA is the worst deal that was ever signed. And of course, like he's attacking the Clintons when he's doing that. But and he might not know this personally, but like he's also attacking like kind of a foundational idea of what republicanism had stood for theoretically over the last 40 years of, of the, the free market. And like with his America first thing, what was it? He wanted to, you know, close that he wanted to increase tariffs and and, and, uh, and shut down free trade a little bit more and, and place more um, burdens or obstacles in the way of, you know, the consumer being able or the business being able to buy and sell as, as he or she wishes. Uh, and that's a really different idea. And again, Biden, Trump, or maybe polar opposite personalities, but Biden's kind of following those, a lot of those similar ideas. And to your point, like it's, it's a credit to Bernie Sanders, who's been banging this drum for years at this point, but also, he's labeled himself a democratic socialist, right? Like that he's been super out there and saying it. And it's encouraged this new wave of leaders, particularly in the House of Representatives, to come in and say like, yeah, like I, I, I'm a socialist. And you even see it like in some of the lower races for like mayor or things like that. Like people are less afraid to call themselves that. And of course, now you have like a backlash, particularly of often from immigrants that have escaped socialist regimes. So, you know, Cubans or Venezuelans or you know, North Koreans or Chinese or whomever, right? And saying like, I lived under true socialism, communism, that's really dangerous, but whatever. The point that I'm trying to make is that these economic ideas are not they're your traditional party ideas. And like this idea of, obviously there's a million reasons why well, a, a democratic socialist wouldn't want to vote for Donald Trump, but like a lot of his policies, you probably agreed with. And same thing, like your far right Republicans, you hate Bernie Sanders, but if you really looked at his economic policies, you probably agree with a lot of them. And it's like, we, we talked about this and I think this is another reason you wanted to talk about it this episode, but when we had Vince on back on um, 
it was like GOP fights that episode. It was like the you know, 22nd episode. Good episode if you want to go back and listen to that one. Where we said that it's like, it's a really interesting period where the people on like the far right and the far left, at least economically, are really in sync. And like the more moderates, which Biden was accused of being, but certainly the Clintons were one and the Bushes were one. Like those were the people that are, are much more of like the neoliberal policies. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it almost makes sense that, right, because Biden kind of came to age under the height of those policies. And so him sort of towing that line, you you, to, you totally understand or it, it, it makes sense. I, I want to come back to uh, kind of what you said about the immigrants who have come to the United States from a lot of these, you know, more or less repressive regimes that espouse communism as their party or socialism in Venezuela or or whatever. I think, I think this is, this has been the moniker or the uh, almost the caricature of the party or the political philosophy that guys like Bernie Sanders have actually actively tried to kind of break that stigma almost and i think one of the things that what i what i hope to see if i'm if i'm looking for uh some silver linings here is not this huge swing back and forth because it has always been one or the other if it's not capitalism then it is communism and you know one is good and one is bad and i think what we've seen is certain applications are good for certain things right like while we have had more, you know, the American economy has grown in leaps and bounds since 1970 to today. It's very true. Uh, Like seven of the top 10 companies are probably headquartered in the United States, right? Like there are, there is a ton to say about the economic engine that we've really created here. And of course, you know, we're being rivaled in certain senses by China um, and perhaps, you know, some other up and coming countries, but really um, we're still far and away the the largest, right? So there's there's that to be said, but we also have to recognize the problems that we've created, like capitalism didn't solve for us any problems with the environment, right? So the traditional view of capitalism or of, of any kind of market solution is that if there's no value ascribed to something, say the air that you breathe or the the temperature outside, then you don't, you don't internalize that cost and it's not reflected in anything. And so what happens to public goods, they get abused until they're gone. Right. So we, we've known this for a while. Like this is also understood under Milton Friedman's view of economics. And so now the question really is, can we take some of the principles that we learned from capitalism and apply it to the areas that capitalism works best and not throw the baby out with the bathwater maybe, but also understand that, look, we've created immense amounts of wealth as a nation. And now we have an opportunity to address a lot of these issues that maybe we thought were secondary to creating the economic engine that we created. And I think what you're seeing is when you have a guy like Jeff Bezos be like, I want to go to space. Um, meanwhile, you can't do a lot of the things that that you want to do or ordinary individuals can't because either the cost of living is too high or their wages are too low. 
you, you're going to, you start to have this tension really build. And I think one of the interesting things about capitalism, it, it has always prized the removal of any ceilings, right? Like we want to have the growth be infinite and the way, like the, whatever, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation, um, that it doesn't matter if those at the top are getting as big as they are, as long as we're kind of growing the pie and everybody's doing a little bit better. And, you know, unquestionably, standard of living wise, I think across the board, people are doing better. But we know that for middle income to lower income people, wages have grown at a much lower rate than they have for the people at the top. So now, when we think about what does our economy look like for the future, I think it's only reasonable for, for people to think about making some changes here um, against sort of the tide of the, like the runaway capitalism. I think this is a question that I, I feel like we used to argue about a long time ago, perhaps when we knew less about this, but what do you think about the growing kind of billionaire class that we have in the United States in the context of the sort of the, the rampant wealth inequality? Um, how, how does that, does that pose a problem for you and the way that capitalism functions, or do you think it's working as it's intended to? Neither. I, I have no problem with Bezos or Gates or Zuckerberg or whomever you know, having as, as much money as they can make. And I, I do think if you, you know, maybe Facebook aside, but if you look at like you know, Microsoft or Amazon, those companies not only have employed you know, hundreds of thousands of people over the years, if not more, but of also like people, like you say, it's raised the standard of living for everyone. Like they've done things that are, that have really made life better for, you know, virtually everyone in the United States. I, if Bezos has money, wants to go to space. I don't begrudge him that. Uh, your point about like the rising inequality. Yeah, that bothers me. Uh, and you know, the, the, like, I, I agree with your point about if just factually, if you look at wages, versus like inflation over the course of 40 years like it there's no way to say that they, they've kept up and so like the the trickle down economics the rising tide you know lifts all boats the rising tide might lift all boats but <laughs> certainly not doing so equally and I don't need it to do it equally but you know maybe a little bit more equally I and so like that I, one's always been my favorite metaphor because yes while I think a rising tide may lift all boats it also tends to like capsize smaller boats and bigger boats tend to float away just as, just fine. And I've always found that metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So yeah, I I guess that that's something where there are, there are a couple ideas that are out there kind of in the ether right now that I I think are, are worth talking about. Um, So like in, I mean, I guess in the context of, so, you know, one of the, one of the target targets of, uh, I guess, guess sort of more Trump Republicans have been sort of the corporatists. I think one of the things that I, or one of the phrases, and please correct me if I have the author wrong, I think it was Alfred Lord Tennyson said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. So we've had, we had the King's Um, And that's who he was talking about, sort of the monarchies being the biggest source of corruption initially, 
And so we wanted to break away from that. And so how do you, you decentralize the power by making sure that everything is kind of market-based um, and that gives individuals the opportunity, but you cannot sort of put limits on what those individual firms can own or the wealth of the individuals who run those firms um, that has to be decided by the market. Um, but what we've seen also is just an explosion in a few very, very wealthy companies. And, and like you said, it's very hard to begrudge them, right? They are creating products and services. Obviously they're employing a lot of people as well, but they're creating the products and services that, that people not only in the United States, but around the world want more than anything else, right? Every, every dollar you spend is a choice that you're making between products and things. And so you're essentially voting for them to be the, the, as, as rich as they right. are. Um, but it's, it's an interesting question, right? Like in a democracy, people set things like taxes ostensibly, right? Obviously it goes to Congress and, and whatever. And if people are willing to, and it really isn't quite clear that that's the direction that things are headed. Although you're hearing a lot of calls for this from definitely from the progressive left, but even from more moderate sides of the, uh, the democratic caucus is that we need to rethink the tax code and we need to, increase taxes on the wealthiest individuals, potentially do something like a wealth tax in order to correct some, or yeah, correct is probably not the right word, right? Because, you know, how did a Jeff Bezos get as rich as he did? Like we made him that rich, but is it not also fair that we can, I mean, that we decide the taxes and that's, you know, part of the deal when you live in a democracy and that's, like part of the, uh, the, the delicate balance that you have to strike. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And so I guess what I was trying to say before is that like, to me, neoliberalism doesn't necessarily mean like laissez-faire, like totally hands-off, right? You kind of, to your credit, you said at the beginning that the government still needs to like enforce the rules and laws of society. And one of the rules that we have as society is the ability to create taxes. And so not that I ever want to give her too much credit, but Elizabeth Warren like has been championing this wealth tax that you just mentioned, which is, you know, is just going to tax, you know, even just a penny or two cents or three cents on every dollar that these people make after like X number of billion dollars. Right. And like, to me, that's a policy that I think makes sense. And I also think is like fairly like broadly well-received like across the spectrum. And like when people talk about raising taxes, you know, obviously people that make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, they're making a ton of money, but those aren't the people that I'm talking about, or even Elizabeth Warren's talking about make, like raising taxes on. We're talking about, you know, putting some extra taxes on like the true uh, billionaires out there or like the, the, you know, multi, multi tens of millions of dollars of people. And like, those are the things where I can definitely get on board with and say, to your point, to be fair, like how does Bezos or Gates, how do they make so much money? One, they, they had the opportunity to live and work in a democracy where they never would have been able to make this much money in most other countries in the world. And two, yeah, you and I are contributing to their wealth by buying Microsoft products or buying things from Amazon, but also they're making their money using like the infrastructure that this government has set up for them and, and using like the labor and workforce that this country provides for them. So do they have like an obligation to give back, not just charitably, but like actually through like taxes? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Well, so that, that I think, 
a huge point that you made that like there are still public goods and services that they used in order to like Facebook, for instance, leverage the internet. Like all, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure things. Um, And in, in seeing sort of the pendulum swimming back again, I think there was that interesting uh, event that happened down in Amazon where they were uh, many people in a warehouse were sort of voting to become part of a union um, and Amazon heavily kind of went in there and, through, uh, you know, a a pretty shrewd marketing campaign squashed it. But I think, you know, the unions being the source of a lot of problems were, is something that really kind of took off in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And even, you know, into the 2000s, you often hear things about uh, against teachers unions and things like that. And, and of course, there, there, there was corruption in those areas too, but there is we've really seen a huge imbalance between kind of the capital class for, for lack of a better word and ordinary laborers, which make up the majority of the country, right? Proletariat, if you will, Ricky. Proletariat, (laughs) if you will. As, as, uh, as our Marxian friend knows. Um, And I I think this is going to be an era where we see some shifts backwards. But what I do hope as someone who feels very much like a social progressive, but is also keenly aware that many of many solutions that we've created have been created because of the market and that not only solutions for today, but but often those solutions create different problems and the solutions for tomorrow can also be created by the market. But what we haven't had or what we've really promoted is that somehow governments regulate governments that regulate and that do things like that are really just detrimental to business. And there is, I think it's, it's often detrimental to the businesses that are existing, but not necessarily detrimental to society. And so that like figuring out how to operate in that delicate balance, I think is going to be something that we are hopefully going to see, but it's, it's very challenging because, you know, like you said, everybody has this idea that either, you know, we're, we're full on capitalists or we're communists. Like there is, Politically, that perception is still there that any of these actions that can be classified as one or the other are inherently going to create, you know, the disastrous situations. Yeah, a couple of things to, to wrap up on my end that it's funny because in, in doing this with you for, you know, X number of months now, almost a year, I suppose, we think that I'm, we're, we're very different in a lot of ways. And and I, I, for sure, am much more of like, call me a neoliberal, call me, I'm much more of like the free market and, and you're much more of like government services, right? But with that said, you know, we're probably closer in a lot of ways than than people on, on either side of, of those things. And that's always been kind of fun to see. And, and along those lines, as like the country continues to get more divided over like these, in so many ways, and people are just so entrenched and stuck in their beliefs and in their parties, it's you hope that in some way that we can come back and I've said this a million times, like come back to ideas of like, I love the idea of like, what is government supposed to do? And 
like if we can take names off it, if we can take Republican and Democrat and, and communists and capitalists off it and just like, hey, like, what would you want your government to do for you? Would you want to like have it maximize your freedom? Like potentially I would, like I want the state to just guarantee as much freedom as possible. Or might you want the government to provide services so that you can all live comfortably and that there's not enormous inequality in your communities, right? Like not that those are totally antithetical and not possible to like, but it's not possible to do both like fully. So like, I mean, I, I'm not hopeful about this, but like I could, I, I, if I could draw it up, that's what I would hope happens. That it became more about like these ideas and less entrenched in these these names and titles for things. Absolutely, and 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 just like you said, to continually ask yourself, yeah, what do we want? What like what ideals do we want our our government to be? striving for and and what is that ideal society and when we look at policies rather than looking at who puts them forth to to really think about both here are the benefits here's the problem that it's slated to solve but what are the you know what are we giving up because every single thing is going to have those those two sides but there is i mean i think we are two people who can definitely agree on that there are ways to do both that like there's always a way to do a little bit of one thing and a little bit of another thing and yes you may maybe you sacrifice some of the upside but in by limiting the downside maybe that's the balance that you are looking for and there's a way to to find that um and i don't know i think i think people are becoming a little bit more, well, I don't, this is, this is the funny thing because I, I feel like people are a little bit more aware today of some of the detriments of the extremes. And yet our political discourse feels more extreme. Um, So hopefully there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's maybe a good place to put a button on this one. Um, now, when we started this, it was like, could could go 40 minutes, could go 40 days. Um, so maybe until until uh, next time, if you have supporting words. I'll give you credit. That went way better than I thought it was going to. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, until next week or okay. until next time. Until next time. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because even though we did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hallway but to those who would die upon that hill, 
Quiet truth is better than a ram. Somewhere online, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, because though mainstream may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head from folks of different minds. Because though we did not share, Opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Need an early morning bird